Welcome to our, our service again, and uh, thank you for joining wherever you are. Uh, we are going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we've covered the first five verses of chapter 1, and today we're going to look at verses 6 to 8. So let's read together, and I think let's read together from verse 1, just to ground ourselves in this chapter again. 1 Thessalonians 1 from verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now from verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Let's read through to the end of chapter 1. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, that we have the technology that enables us to still connect in this way, Lord. And God, I just pray that uh, over the this next period, Lord, that you would be with us all, that you would help us in our homes to avoid distraction. And Holy Spirit, we know that you are not bound. And so we ask that you would move in power even as we sit in our living rooms or wherever we are and do your work in the church. Through your word, we pray. Amen. Throughout the 90s, there was perhaps no more famous sports star than Michael Jordan. He had six NBA titles, five MVPs, 10 scoring titles, 14 all-star appearances. His accolades added up. You don't have to know anything about basketball to know who Michael Jordan is. He was an icon. Gatorade even made an ad with a famous jingle, a jingle that rang in the hearts of children as they played on the basketball court, wanting to be like Mike, the song went. There was a time when every kid wanted a pair of Nike's Air Jordan. They wanted to dress like him and have his swagger, have his skill, have his life. Michael Jordan is exhibit A of the strong sense of imitation in our culture. The message that we so often buy into is if you could just be like this or that celebrity, if you could have their life, then happiness would be there at your fingertips. And yet happiness seems so elusive. 
even more so for those who are rich and, and famous and imitated by all. Well, in 2013, when Michael Jordan was about to turn 50, a staff writer for ESPN Outside the Lines wrote an article about him. He spent time with Jordan and his inner circle, and the title of the article was, Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building. But reading this article, you just get an overwhelming sense that Jordan isn't happy. He says he'd give anything to get back to the game, to that pinnacle of his glory. The article follows and speaks about how for three decades, Michael Jordan has been the most important man in every room that he's walked into. His security team, uh, watching over the inner circle, has nicknames for all of them. Nicknames like Venom and Butler and Harmony. Well, Jordan's nickname is Yahweh. And yet this constantly being at the center of attention has never been able to satisfy, never been able to reverse the loss of what turned out to be so fleeting. Michael Jordan will be remembered longer than most, and yet his life, like yours and like mine, is still just a vapor. The writer of the article says this, he says, there's a fable about returning Roman generals who rode in victory parades through the streets of the capital. A slave stood behind them, whispering in their ears, all glory is fleeting. Nobody does that for professional athletes. Jordan couldn't have known that the closest he'd get to immortality was during that final walk off the court. All that can happen in the days and years that follow is for the shining monument he built to be chipped away, eroded. Do we really want to be like Mike? You know, despite the truth that every celebrity will fade into oblivion and the truth that fame and riches do not guarantee happiness, still we see in our culture that we imitate them because we want the, what they have. We imitate the wrong people because we treasure the wrong things. Well, the Bible doesn't call us to stop the imitation game. There is, as one scholar called it, a godly doctrine or doctrine of godly imitation. But the Bible does call us to have different desires and a different treasure, which would dictate who and what we imitate. Last week we came to verse 4 where Paul makes this confident claim about the church in Thessalonica. He says of them, we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. So we ask the question, how? How can Paul know this? In verse 5 we saw the first reason in how the gospel came to them. Paul came and he preached and he knew he was preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit he was preaching with full conviction in his message, and he had confidence in what the gospel would do in that place. And this week, we will see the second reason for his confidence in their salvation, in how they received the gospel. Verse 6, he says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, imitators of us. Verses 6 to 8 shows us what this imitation looked like in the life of this church and why, therefore, Paul had so much confidence in their salvation. See, their imitation of him 
and the imitation of the Lord was a sign of what they treasured, a sign of the direction of their lives, not towards the world, but towards Christ, so that Paul could say in verse 9, we know that you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Christ was their goal. Their hopes for joy and satisfaction were set in Him alone. So as we consider now this proof of their election in verses 6 to 8, I've got three headings around this doctrine of Christian imitation. We're going to look firstly at its importance, number one. Secondly, at the nature of Christian imitation. And thirdly, at the result. Importance, nature, result. Number one, the importance of Christian imitation. The word for imitate in verse 6 um, is a Greek word from which we derive the English mimic. Mimic. Having three kids, I know firsthand the importance of a godly example because children mimic their parents. The other day, Sheree told the boys to clean their room and she left them for a while and then asked them after a while if they had obeyed. And Noah said, you've never seen a room so clean. It's cleaner than your face. Now, you might not understand the your face reference, but this horrified Sheree, not because he was being cheeky, but because she knew the source of it. How easily Noah picks up on his dad's silly inside jokes. I've never had my character tested more than since becoming a father. I know they will imitate me. And so I'm, I'm desperate, desperate for my example to be positive. I have, when it comes to my walk with God, my holiness, a mantra, three words, one for each of my children. It sums up what I want to be right now in this phase of life. Gentle, patient, faithful. One word for each child, for what I, I believe they need most right now. For Noah, my eldest, who's my most sensitive, he needs a gentle father with a kind tongue. Uh, what Judah needs most, he's my middle and most testing child. He needs a patient father, self-controlled, one who would provide security. And what Alyssa needs, my most, or my precious daughter, my only daughter, my precious daughter in a world that seeks to burn biblical manhood to the ground and has all but castrated the role of the father. What she needs is a father who is faithful and loyal to God, to his wife, to his family, who takes spiritual responsibility for the home. You, do you know how important your example is in your home, in your church, in your community, in your school? The church is also a family. G.K. Beale said, if we really are part of God's family, then we will reflect God's love. We will be like Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect model of faith, love, and hope when He lived on this earth. We will be like other Christian brothers and sisters who reflect also these godly qualities. Have you ever been around another Christian that you wanted to be like? You wanted to follow their example in holiness, in their walk with God? I, I hope that you have. I hope you have. It's a good thing to have godly people in your life that you can imitate. Paul says this is exactly what has happened for the church in Thessalonica. Paul has come to them 
and he's preached to them, and these people who are wrapped up in idolatry start coming to Christ and start saying, I want to live like Paul. I want to follow Jesus like Paul does. And throughout the New Testament, we see this repeated exhortation to imitate people in the church, to imitate leaders in the church and godly people. Paul says to the Corinthian church, that church that was struggling with lots of problems, he says to them in 1 Corinthians 4, 15 and 16, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul saying that to the church. Again, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Jesus. To the Philippians in 3.17, he says to them, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. To a church tempted to compromise in the world, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, verse 12, Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This New Testament attitude of looking to godly people, looking and submitting to leaders, it flies in the face of the spirit of our age. People today in the world live in this way, saying, I will live my life my way, making my own decisions with my own wisdom. I won't tell you how to live your life and you don't tell me how to live mine not realizing that all they're doing is buying into the system of the age where self is God, where they are imitating their father, the devil who rebelled against God the Father. Even in the church sometimes we see the struggle, don't we? Struggle to overcome the spirit of the age, to submit to any authority. The idea that there's a God-given authority placed over me is completely foreign to the world's mindset, and we see this sometimes in the church, this mindset that my own wisdom is sufficient. My own wisdom is enough. Sometimes we even see it in our refusal to submit to God through His Word when something that the Lord has commanded in Scripture doesn't line up with the path that I believe will lead to my happiness or my satisfaction. All of a sudden, you see people even in the church pushing Scripture aside do you have somebody in your life, a Paul, that you can look to and follow? You should be worried if you don't. Someone to imitate, someone to encourage you, a Barnabas in your walk with God. If you don't today, then do something about it. Seek somebody out. Call out to somebody and say, hey, can, hey, can we have coffee? Can we meet up? It's not only good as well to want to, do, to imitate godly people in the church. It's a good desire to want to become the kind of person that others can imitate. Paul rejoices over this church, firstly, that they, were, they became imitators of Paul and imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, in verse 7, they themselves, he says, became an example to all the believers throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Paul rejoices that their obedience to Christ was on display for all the world to see. And so as Christians, we are called to walk this thin line, this line between humility together with noticeable obedience to Christ. And I say this is a, th a thin line because we are so prone to glory seeking, aren't we? So easily we think about what people are thinking of us 
and human praise. Jesus anticipated this in us, this tendency in our heart. And so he commands in Matthew 6, verse 3 to 4, he says, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If you're doing things for, God, for the praise and approval of men, then Jesus has this word for you. Stop it. Stop doing things so that they can see. But then the chapter just prior, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, 14 to 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that when they see your good works, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, it's problematic when we do things in order to be well thought of, in order to be praised for our glory. But it is right. It is right for us to want to live a life of obedience to Christ in the sight of others. Because we want everybody to see the beauty, the supremacy, the glory of Christ that has taken hold of our hearts. Jesus says we are the light of the world. Makes me think of a, a lighthouse. There are many, many beautiful lighthouses in the world. Many a picture and a painting has sought to capture this beauty. But the primary purpose of a lighthouse is not to be admired. The purpose of a lighthouse is to hold a light that would guide sailors in the dark. Lighthouses are most appreciated not in the day, but in the night when the beauty of their structure is irrelevant. It is good to want people to see the light in your life, not for your own glory. We must guard against that tendency, but so that your humble walk with God would show the way to life and to hope. And would shepherd others to Christ. In all things we seek to imitate our leaders. And have others imitate us. Because we want to be a church that imitates the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be headed in one direction. We want to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. To the glory of Christ. This is the importance of Christian imitation. Number two. The nature of Christian imitation. The nature in what way in particular had these people in this church imitated Paul and the Lord in a way that gave Paul the confidence that he had about them? He says in verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul came preaching to them in the synagogue. And what was his message again? I've said it week in and week out. In Acts 17, he reasoned, explained, proved to them from the Scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. His message to the church was of a suffering Savior who in Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, For the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. And the message of the cross bids us also to come and die to self, to take up our crosses and follow Him. The crucified and risen Savior was the one for whom Paul had given up everything. Even after that Savior had said of him, remember, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
Paul knew what he was getting into, and yet he chose to follow anyway. And Paul's preaching was a kind of preaching that made claims upon the whole life of the follower. Not, not only parts, but the whole life submitted to Jesus Christ as king. And this completely disrupted the status quo in the city of Thessalonica. James Grant says this in his commentary, these Christians were disrupting their culture because they were bringing a different message. What was the message of that culture? It was this, look to Caesar, he will give you peace and prosperity, and he will bring you happiness. He will protect you and guard you. If you follow him and trust him and imitate other Roman citizens, everything will go well. And Paul came preaching of another king. The real king, the one and true God, the one worth leaving all former comforts and sins behind. And Paul's life to be imitated was a life of willingness to suffer for a greater king. And immediately that's what we see in the city, the suffering. After they turn from idols to God, it produces trouble for them. And the accusation comes in Acts 17, 6-7. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This is what the church is accused of. So Richard Phillips says, The complaints made against Christians by the world will often be our highest compliment. Our highest compliment. But it cost this church something to receive the word. And that's the point. It's important for all believers, especially young believers in the faith, to know this, that coming to Christ does not spell the end of your troubles. And so many churches, so many churches use this net of false teaching to ensnare people. That Christ, come to Christ and have an answer to all your affliction and pain. If you're being afflicted right now, what you need actually is more faith. And so what we see is so many people coming to church, coming to God only for this reason, for improvement of their circumstances. They want a a better job perhaps, or a better marriage, or something to change. And, And for sure, God does use sort of rock bottom moments to bring us to himself But when you come to God only for those things, when trouble inevitably comes to your life, you will become bitter in your faith. Martin Luther once said, Christ was crowned with thorns. Were you expecting roses? Now Christ can remove affliction. And it is good to pray for your marriage to improve and to pray for a better job, to pray for healing. But sometimes and often Christ's purpose for us is the exact opposite. It's just his glory and our joy in affliction. This ultimately was the proof for Paul of their salvation. A proof that a miracle had been done in them, a miracle that only the Holy Spirit can do. Joy while suffering for Jesus Christ. John Piper asks the question that he characteristically then immediately answers himself. He says, does joy emerging in the heart of someone who hears the gospel prove that they are elect? No. But joy that rises and stays in the heart of someone hearing the gospel when they are being afflicted for it does. Right? This is Jesus' point 
In Mark 4, 16 to 17, where he explains in his parable of the sower, the seed that fell on rocky soil, Jesus says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then when tribulation, the same word as in our passage in 1 Thessalonians, or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And the proof for Paul and his confidence for this church is that when tribulation came, they did not give up and they did not lose their joy. John Lilly describes this joy as one that springs only from his presence an operation in the soul, and which perhaps is never in this world so pure and deep and full as when a man is enabled to suffer faithfully for Christ's sake and the gospels. Do you know that, that there is a joy available to the Christian that no one else can experience because it's a joy we experience when we are suffering together with Christ and for Christ. And it is a joy that cannot be explained in our natural state. It cannot be explained by anything in this world except through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Is Jesus more precious to you than any avoidance of trouble and any comforts that can come and happiness that can come your way through compromise in the world? Is he more precious to you than that? The evidence that you are saved is that when affliction comes, you choose him still, even when he is the cause. Because you have a joy that is unexplainable apart from his abiding presence in your life. A joy that comes because you have peace with God and salvation through sins forgiven. A joy that knows that one day God will make everything right again. And that his kingdom will never end. And so therefore it is a joy that you know cannot be taken away from you. In this world. Over the last few months, in the, in the greater scheme of things, the, the minor trial and trouble that my family has faced, I've received more comfort from this one thing. I can say this with all truthfulness, this is not hyperbole. I've received more comfort from this one thing than anything else, and it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life that brings about an awareness and an acknowledgement from my lips about the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus. My constant refrain that brings healing has always been this, Jesus is enough and Jesus is worth it. Is that true for you? May you learn to say with all honesty in your heart, Jesus is enough and Jesus is worth it. The importance of Christian imitation, the nature of Christian imitation. Number three, let's look at its result. When it says in verse seven that they became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia, that word for example is actually an important biblical word, the word tupos, from which we, we get the word type. We speak a lot about types uh, in biblical theology. But it was a word that was used for various kinds of physical models in the ancient world. Something that was used perhaps as a prototype for the manufacture of other things. But it's also used with this idea of an 
imprint that's left by a physical object. So when they made coins and the press was pressed onto that metal, the imprint left over was called a, a tupos. That was the standard, that press, for all the coins to be made after it. The, the mark as well that you would receive or the bruise left over after taking a beating was called a, a tupos, that imprint. So you see, Paul rolled into Thessalonica, probably still bruised, still bruised from the beating that he had taken in Philippi, bruised but humming in his heart a tune, a song ringing in his heart that had sprung forth at midnight in the middle of that cell. I want to know Christ. And the fellowship of his suffering. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Jesus was the tupas for Paul. And he became the tupas for the Thessalonians. And they imitated him and so became the tupas for all of those around them. And the result, Paul says in verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith and God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul says the gospel has sounded forth. That word is used in literature to describe trumpet blasts, the sound or the clap of thunder, even a rumor that spreads unstoppable. It, from its root, we get the English word echo. You see this pictures of the gospel going forth and echoing and reverberating through the valleys and the hills of Greece. Such was the effect of this young and afflicted but hope-filled church. C.S. Lewis spoke about suffering having an amplifying effect upon the Word of God. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that is certainly true. God gets our attention most through our pain. But we know that this carries on also into a deaf world. When we suffer with hope and our message through it all is Christ is enough and Christ is worth it. That's when a deaf world pays the most attention to what we have to say. And we wish it wasn't so sometimes, but God uses our pain more perhaps than anything else to support the gospel message that we preach. The truth that we are not made for this world, but made for one that is free from sin and idolatry and even the trouble around us. And when in our suffering we find Jesus sweet still, we shout to the world the truth of his sufficiency and supremacy. And this is so relevant right now for the church. We know that limitations make it difficult for us to reach our neighbors. But we should be seeing this day as the day of opportunity. Where fear and despair hold sway in people's lives. We ought to stand out as the church. Because our hope and our joy cannot be shaken in Christ. This passage this week made me think of. Lisette, who has been diagnosed with cancer and is undergoing heavy treatment and chemotherapy. She's saying it's had a brutal effect on her body. She said her doctor said she has a, a naive system. She doesn't drink or smoke or uh, take tablets much for anything. 
Which, by the way, is why I end every night with whiskey and my paid. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> but Lisette can see into her future, and what she sees ahead of her is pain. Pain. But what is her outlook? We got an update from her this week in which she wrote, I am joyful and got to share my joyfulness and hope with my fellow chemo patients. And she was talking to me about one of them who, who's saying, why me? Why me? And the set's response was this, why not me? It can't always be somebody else. I must know that this is just a trial I've got to work through. God will carry me through. And I must lean on His strength, not my own. Right now, Lisette, in her trial, is experiencing the joy of fellowship with Christ in a way that she couldn't do otherwise. Jesus lived with an anticipation of pain. In Gethsemane, he saw into the horrors of a cross that were coming for him the next day. And he submitted to that for the Father's glory and for the ransom of the church. And when he calls us to follow him, we are called to a similar submission for the glory of God and for the sake of others. The Thessalonian joy in affliction and their commitment to count the cost and to preach the gospel meant that their faith went forth everywhere so that Paul says, we need not say anything. Paul's saying, when I go somewhere and I want to preach to them the gospel and talk about the power of the gospel, I say, let me give you an illustration. There's this church in Thessalonica, and they stop me and say, yeah, no, Paul, we've heard about them already. We know already. They were not a mega church. They didn't have a live stream or social media, or a website, or an amazing audiovisual church a team. All they had was a mission-mindedness, a love for their Savior, and a belief in the power of the gospel. HBC, what do we have? What do we have? And what are we known for in our world? What do we want to be known for in the world around us? We cannot control everything about our reputation. And when you follow Christ faithfully, that will mean the world will frown upon what you say and what you do. And chances are sooner or later we'll be hated for it. But if we understand our place in the world and know that we are not made for the comforts of this world, but we exist for Christ and His kingdom... If our great unified aim is to be more and more like Him, to imitate one another as we imitate Him, then whatever else we are accused of, perhaps what we do in the world will cause people to scratch their heads. You know those people at HBC, they think that Jesus is the only way to God? You know they teach that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God? But they're also honest and kind, merciful and loving, and they're full of a weird hope. Maybe there's something to what they say. What are we going to be known for, church? Let's pray. Father, we need... Your help. We want to glorify you 
And yet so often we see this competing desire, competing desires, plural, desire for our own glory, desires for comfort, for fame, for wealth, for happiness that comes apart from obedience to you. Help us, Lord, to see more and to cherish more the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of Christ. May that ever be before our eyes so that when trouble and affliction comes, we can say from the honesty in our hearts that Jesus is still enough, that Jesus, you are still worth it, that we will not be shaken. We will not be turned aside to the right or the left, but we will follow after you, trusting in you, even when we know that you could take away our affliction with a single word. Because God, we know that if you just did take away all affliction, we would lose the opportunity. The opportunity of experiencing a fellowship in your suffering. The opportunity of making a loud and bold declaration to the world around us. So God, we ask that you would help us to cherish the going out of the gospel more than our own comfort and well-being. Stretch us more and more, even through this season. Break down our idols. Draw our hearts to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.